Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trollson Law Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news, as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. My name is Mary Vandenack, founder, CEO, and managing partner at Vandenack Weaver LLC. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about closely held businesses, tax, trust and estates, legal technology, law firm leadership, and well-being for lawyers. Before we start today's episode, I want to thank our sponsor. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. There's always a resistance to change, particularly with attorneys. Attorneys like to look back at what's worked in the past, and that makes a lot of sense. But when you realize that with a good automated drafting system, you can do a better job for your clients, deliver documents on a more timely fashion, in a more consistent and in a more costly manner. If you're not a subscriber to Interactive Legal, I urge you to go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo and you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of interactive legal for you, which can be done right over the internet. Don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time inconvenient for you. So please go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. On today's episode, I am joined by Monty Schatz, a co-member at my firm, He's my guest, and we're going to discuss common trust and estate litigation and how to avoid it when it is possible. Monty sort of really loves, and I love the fact that he loves litigation because I really like being on the planning end. When it gets into the litigation, it's a lot of family fistfights or beneficiary fistfights, and Monty does a really nice job sorting that out. So, Monty, how does a non-existent or poorly done estate plan contribute to trust and estate litigation? Well, there's several ways that that can happen, um, and and probably uh, one of the predominant ones is where I'll start with a lot of people will try to create their own estate plan. They might download the online wills. Yeah, the online wills, the downloading the documents, um, and and filling in the blanks. Uh, probably a more relevant situation that I've run into. In, in recent times, I've noticed people have done uh, drafted a lot of their own what we call holographic wills, which are wills in their own handwriting. Now, on its face, it seems simple. Uh, you, you, it has to be totally in the handwriting of the person that draws up the will. Um, it has to be dated by them, and it has to be signed by them. And that sounds simple enough, right? Well, when you got, in cases like I've had, five, ten, fifteen million dollars in assets at hand. And in some cases, I've had split families, first and second marriages, and that person tries to amend those documents by drawing a line through them and initialing them. Uh, the radar goes up between family members, and you're inevitably going to end up in, in, a, in a huge fight because the stakes are big. You know. So that's a category that we refer to as will formality issues, right? Right. Right. And so it's like, this wasn't properly executed. And we're already seeing some cases during the pandemic, there were a lot of states changed the requirements, lifted the requirements, but not everybody understood what that meant. Like some said, well, you can do an electronic notary, but the witnesses still have to be in person. And 
we saw a lot of people printing stuff online and thinking and sadly and some states have been fairly supportive and kind about some of the lack of formalities where others are really strict about it right so that's one area then another area we see a fair amount of litigation in is called this lack of capacity area what is what type of litigation is that can you expand on how that occurs yeah uh so when you talk about lack of capacity one of the re- requirements when a testamentary document is signed whether that is a power of attorney, um, healthcare power of attorney, will trust any of those critical documents. One of, the, one of the requirements is that the person has to have an understanding of what they're signing. They have to understand who, what their assets are that they are going to be giving away either during life or at death. And they have to understand who the individuals or institutions in the case of a charity or a foundation that they're giving this money to. And if they don't have that, what we call testamentary capacity to understand those, those three concepts, then, then we got an issue of whether the instrument's valid or not. And without going into a long line of detail in determining capacity. It's a function of you got to look at medical capacity first, typically, and hopefully that was looked at while the document was being signed while the person was alive. And then, if there's a you know if there shows some level of decline in capacity, or at least it's questionable, a mental capacity of the person, then you got to make the determination of legal capacity, and that's on. Typically, unfortunately, it is where you got to invoke the courts, and that's when you get into the litigation aspects of it. And at this point, we're dealing with somebody who's deceased. So we're in litigate, and the litigation is occurring after death, and we have beneficiaries fighting about it. So how are we proving they sign this document, sometimes often in an attorney's office? Yeah. And so how how do we prove that? What are the issues? So... A, a few things that you look at uh, and, and some proactive measures that can be taken. Uh, again, and Wait, let me ask that more specifically. So but, you said like capacity, which you're referring to testamentary capacity, which can be different from contractual capacity. Yes. But signing wills and trusts is usually a testamentary capacity standard, right? Right. So what they need to know is the you know nature of their bounty, what their assets are, who's kind of getting what general understanding. But it's not a super high standard. In some senses. So whose job is it at that document signing conference to figure out whether the person has capacity? Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's, it's incumbent. Again, lawyers are not psychiatrists or psychologists or people who can run those tests. But if, they're, if the attorney is suspect that the person may have there may be a question about the person signing their estate planning documents, whether they understand what they're signing. I think it's really incumbent on the attorney to pull back and say, we need to take some steps to make a determination of this. And, you know, what are those steps? Uh, again, if, if it's the client themselves, uh, I think you need to at least have a conversation with them to, to say that to make sure that your documents stand up when you pass away, we, we, we should do have some proof of your capacity. Now, and so you, that's when you doubt it. But I say even with my standard day-to-day client, yep. they come in to sign documents. Yep. 
I engage in a casual conversation about the weather, the College World Series, the you know national basketball, whatever's going on at the particular moment in life. And I'm just kind of looking, Higgin, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not, but all I want to do is have enough conversation to see their level of understanding what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, I avoid politics because that'll bring out anybody's incapacity, <laughs> but I might ask about their kids yeah. and, and it's just a casual conversation. And sometimes I've had, you know, younger attorneys say, why are you like talking for so long? You know, we're on the clock. And I'm like, because <laughs> I'm trying to figure out. And then as they go into the documents before they sign it, I always ask them about the documents. And so where you're saying is if I start to see at some point that, they can't remember their younger son's name. Yeah. I might raise a question and say something like, maybe we shouldn't sign these today. Yeah. Is that, and so now we're talking post-death. How do we know whether those steps were taken? Well, a, a couple of things. Um, when a testamentary document is signed, particularly, specifically a will, uh, you have witnesses. You're uh, typically two witnesses. And, those persons have to be of a specified age and they actually sit there and watch the individual sign the documents. And typically the attorney in the signing conferences, whether it's a trust or a will, will have parties sitting at the table and those, those critical questions you alluded to. And I think more than the specifics about, uh, you know, before you get into the specifics about what assets do you have, who are you leaving your estate plan to, I think those general conversations are critical. And if I have any question mark about it, I know my personal practices, and I think, Mary, you, you, yours has been the same. I will literally film the person asking those questions. It's kept confidential in the file, but if things blow up later post-death, at least I can have evidence of video evidence and not just people testifying, not that that's insignificant, having witnesses and a notary in the room, but to have that additional videotaping will, will go a long ways typically toward proving that this person had some capacity or at least mitigate the chance of, of somebody contesting whether this person understood what they were signing. So it'd be important though, if you're videoing or recording to make sure that, you know, there's some states that you can do one party without knowledge or consent. Right. And there's other states, I think there, I can't remember, 12 or 13 states that don't, where you have to have the consent. So if you record that and they they ultimately didn't have capacity, their consent was invalid. Yeah, that, that could be a problem, but I, I still... Another litigation topic for a, you, Another right? litigation topic, but I, I still think having that in hand. And of course I always have, but you would get their consent, right? Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to start. We've had, the, I've had the casual conversation before we're recording or taping an actual execution ceremony anyway. So I've at least decided, you know, made this decision like, okay, I don't feel like I need to send this person on to a psychiatrist at right. this moment or to a neuroscience for right. an evaluation. And interestingly enough, I, I I've, Rarely will I say never, but I've never had a client where I've asked permission to videotape them resist that. They seem to be willing to do that, and they seem to understand the purpose. Yeah, I think clients want their testamentary intents yeah. to happen, Yeah, and so that's the conversation that I have with them about it. Yeah. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors, Carson Private Client. 
Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Okay, let's continue our episode. So there's another kind of related but different topic that comes up in litigation, and that's the area of undue influence. Can you just explain, and this is again, we're in the post-death situation, what's the claim? Who's making the claim and what is the claim? Typically, the person that's making the claim in undue influence would be one of the heirs who feels based on how the trust distributed the assets at death or is proposed to distribute the assets or the will uh, is significantly less than, that, than what they understood before. And frequently, that let's use a family situation. That's an easy one. You have four children. Um, and and actually, the person who passed away had shown them their estate plan before. Not always, but and and it was clear all along. And mom and dad during all those years always indicated we want everything to be equal. We want everything to be equal. And then all of a sudden, the person passes away. The will is filed, and all of a sudden, son one gets fifty percent of the estate, and son two and the two daughters split the other 50%. And it's like, what happened here? I, the, you know, mom and dad clearly wanted everything. What happened? Well, you know, almost without failure, on a practical basis, one of those other three or all of them, any combination of the three of them are going to say, you know, son who got 50% clearly was, you know, he was seeing dad more regularly. He was going into the nursing home more regularly, if that was the case, or visiting dad at his, his residence. You know, mom may have passed away already. He was isolated. And there's a lot of circumstances that raise heightened uh, concern about son exerting some fraud or and fraud and undue influence is really a form of fraud, you know, trying to persuade a person to change. Their yeah, I, want, I want more. Yeah, I want more. I, yeah, give me a I bigger cut. Of, of, I want all of it. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And a lot of times, frequently, though not always, it's it's the child who lives closest to the parent. And, and a lot of times those other children may not be in the area. So, and that person. Well, I've a, had kids show up that hadn't seen their parents for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> right? You get the other Suddenly tree, too. Mad, it's the magical reunification. Yeah. And, the, you know, that that's part of the issue. Is that actually undue influence or did the kid really feel bad that they'd been estranged from mom or dad? I'm just going to, like, take a shot here and throw a hypothetical at you and say, what are the what are the lawsuits in this one? And I'm going to kind of use, obviously, I can't use facts too similar to something, so I'm going to make them up. But let's just say that a guy, his wife had died, and so he meets another woman, 
spends 30 years with her, lives in a state where there's no common law marriage, but they, you know, stay together the entire 30 years and three kids totally estranged from him, had no interest in talking to him, had no conversation with him, but all of a sudden he becomes ill. And so the, all three kids show up and this guy's left every, you know, he's left his kids some stuff, even though they've been estranged from them. But he's taking care of his 30-year partner really well, leaving her annuities, covering her in her trust. Well, the kids show up, run in, get dad to sign a power of attorney, mm-hmm. naming them as power of attorney for health care and legal power of attorney. And then actually, and they give themselves the authority to change his trust documents, so change, cut out the 30-year partner completely. What, what litigation do I have on behalf of this 30-year partner? I, I think I think you got the litigation that involves undue influence and, and capacity questions come into to play there. And I, interestingly enough, I think where especially where this was done under the auspices of a, of a power of attorney or under the authority of a power of attorney, um, I think that uh, I you know this is a contractual you know action and interestingly enough, contracts even have a higher level of standard, you know, um, uh, where where authority is given, where where you can prove undue influence, and that that person named as power of attorney abused that. So you you've got the undue influence, and then I think hand in hand with that is is you also have a potential breach of fiduciary duty. A, a power of attorney has a fiduciary duty to act in the interests of the person who gave that that power of attorney, and and. If, if it can be shown by the circumstances that uh, there was never, you know, that that they abused that to benefit themselves as opposed to doing what the person granting the power of attorney did, I think that's a breach of fiduciary duty, and you could have a potential action there as well, too, and reverse things retroactively, perhaps. And the exact cause of action that you have is going to depend a little bit on the state that you're in. Oh, absolutely. Right? So there's changes from some, state to state. Yep. Some states that recognize what I would call uh, interference with testamentary intent. I think yep. most states actually recognize the interference with contractual intent. Yeah. But you have like the annuity situation where somebody changes the beneficiary or draws down an annuity. Right. That'd be interference with contract. But in some case, some states, you still have an issue pursuing that simply because they say this ought to be handled in probate, right? Yeah. And that's one of the challenges in dealing with some of the, some of these cases. So, you know, I have another set of facts that is a, similar to something I saw, but let's say that there's a son who moves his mom up into his attic room, mm-hmm. and she's like 95 years old, and um, they're caring for her. She hasn't driven a car for 15 years, but she owns a Maserati and she has a hundred thousand a year food bill, even though she eats like a bird Mm -hmm. and then daughter, your son, the son gets power of attorney, starts draining annuities, changing the trust. What's What are causes of action there? Well, I think there's, I think there's both court actions and actions you can take out of the court. I, 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 you know, where you have a, have a situation like that. I think there could be an argument for elder abuse and reporting, for example, to the Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services. There's even actions that can be 
if it's to a level well, whatever of whatever state they're in. So yeah, it might be Nebraska. Yeah, this correct. was, you know, maybe Oregon is where my set of facts was. Right, right. So you have that, and 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 then also um, uh, you would have an action, of, you know, of an adult in in need of protection. You could also use that route as well um, through through the court systems and through the mental health systems as well too. Potentially, if the if the mother has, you know potential declining mental health and so forth she would need protection and of course there is the court action for uh, you know, uh, p- particularly if the person um, who's being held up in the attic might have diminished capacity and so forth might have to go for a guardianship and or a, a conservatorship especially if that person can no longer designate another person to be his or her health care power of attorney. So the good news out of that list is when there's a challenge, there's potentially a lot of ways to address an issue. Oh, many, many ways. And, and you know, it's the, it's the attorney's job at that point um, to sit there and assess what the, what, the, what the path to helping this person, what the best path or combination of paths might be to, to assist this person. So it's not uncommon for there to be an estrangement among a family. If somebody wants to disinherit, let's say, a child or some other beneficiary, what are the issues that arise in that context? So the issues that arise in that context are, um, first, let's start with, with, with one general rule. The only, the only person under the laws of virtually every state jurisdiction in this country that is entitled to an inheritance and cannot be disinherited is a surviving spouse. Okay, you can't disinherit a spouse. There's provisions for that. Unless she signed a valid premarital agreement Correct. allowing herself Correct. or himself to be disinherited. Correct. Correct. Uh, children can be disinherited. Any other, virtually anybody else can be disinherited. But let's focus on children because obviously that's the, the, you know the biggest target that in the biggest controversy that's going to arise because. Children sometimes feel an entitlement to have an inheritance, um, and it's not an entitlement; it's a windfall, frankly. And so, so when it comes to children um, um, who want to contest this, one of the things I always recommend on the estate planning, and again, being preemptive before we go to having to do the surgery to remedy this, called a trial, is make certain that you designate very clearly in your documents if you're going to disinherit a child or children that you identify that per, that child in the documents, um, that you specifically state that you are disinheriting them. You don't have to give reasons. You just that you are disinheriting them. And although this doesn't bulletproof it, it's often been suggested that you leave a, a relatively token amount of money or assets to that person and the reason why that's, that's encouraged is that the, the argument that you'll come into after the fact by children who have been disinherited is, well, mom or dad didn't really mean to disinherit me. They, it was just an omission by, by him or her. You know, their memory may have been failing or the attorney didn't get that in the document. Well, when you specifically, uh, you know, acknowledge that, that, they're be, that this is a child of mine, they're being disinherited and and I'm leaving them whatever the token, relatively token amount of money is versus would, what would typically be a way larger inheritance that really helps seal, uh, you know, and at least, let's put it this way. It's, a, it's not a brick wall that's going to stop them, but it's certainly a hurdle from them claiming that they, they, they can't be disinherited. So, and the other thing I've heard, Monty, is 
there's the token amount theory. Mm-hmm. But the other theory is give them enough so they have something to lose if they challenge. That's, is that a strategy that's, that's worth considering? Yeah, that's because a very Because if they are strategy. left absolutely nothing or $1 yeah. by suing and running up all these legal fees, they have nothing to lose. So who cares if right. they have the money to pursue the suit or think they have some ability to get attorney's fees out of that, right? Yeah, I agree. And that's a very pragmatic strategy. And and what what uh, what the attorney um, and and the estate are going to or trust are going to have to determine is you got to look at the dynamics of the family and see if that that type of strategy is going to work to dissuade them from filing a, 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 a you know a litigation claim. So breach of fiduciary you've mentioned in a couple of my hypotheticals, but can you just explain generally what it means to have a breach of fiduciary duty that is something that you can litigate about. Yeah. So in, in, in trusts and estates in a trust, uh, the fiduciary is the individual or institution called the trustee. Uh, there, there can also, there can be other parties that are designated with the fiduciary, uh, fiduciary responsibilities, um, such as a trust protector, a trust director, those types of things. And then on the estate side, the fiduciary is typically the personal representative executor, whatever that terminology is that's designated in the particular state. These are the people that are charged with administering the estate or the trust. um, And their job is to administer it, make sure all the the ministerial duties are done, uh, you know, filing of the the appropriate court actions in the case of an estate, uh, making sure the accounting goes out um, post-death if required to the relatives in the case of a trust, making sure that the assets are being protected, preserved, um, and ultimately where there's provisions in the trust or estate that, that dictate where the assets are to go, are to go to at upon specified events, making sure that happens. And particularly in the case of a trust, that's a tough balancing act because if the trust continues after death, you have people who the tr- that, that are called income beneficiaries typically that you have to take care of them, and yet you have to preserve the assets of the trust for future or remainder beneficiaries. And the thing that's crit- critical in doing your fiduciary duty, you have to make sure you invest the assets prudently and you have to be objective. Those are the two big things that I see happening. So, because we're running short on time, so I just want to say, well, if I'm a beneficiary, yeah, what's my most likely claim as for a breach of fiduciary? Typically, either that the the um, the trustee did not act in the best interests of of the um, beneficiaries of the trust. That's for example, they invested all the funds, all the assets in funds that they got huge fees from, in addition to their trustees' fees. Right. Is that? A possible right, example. or they didn't, or they didn't invest it prudently. They uh, they put too many too many of the trust funds into one asset. Didn't put everything into cryptocurrency in it. Yeah, tank, exactly, exactly. As opposed to they should have put it all in Apple stock last year. Yeah, right. <laughs> into tech stocks that really did well. Well, Monty, there's several other types of trust and estate litigation, and we'll talk about those and weave those into some future podcasts. But I appreciate your time today talking about these topics. So I appreciate the listeners for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. A Huda Media Production.